Coaches, how are you? This is Coach Kevin Furtado. Welcome again to the Championship Vision. Today is episode number 70, and this is a special one today. We got Coach Glenn Welks, an absolute legend, 90 years old. I'm so excited to be talking to Coach Welks. He's a former head basketball coach at NCAA Division I Stetson University. Is a veteran of 41 years of college coaching, during which time his team won 674 games. He has extensive experience in other basketball-related activities. In 1958, he originated the famous Glenn Wilkes Basketball School, the South's first and most popular basketball school, which he personally directed for 37 years. He currently works closely with all of the Nike basketball camps, directs the Shooting Stars basketball camp, the Shooting Stars point guard camp, and the Shooting Stars big man camp. In addition, he is assistant director of the Michael Jordan Flight Basketball School camp for ages 8 through 18, assistant director of the Michael Jordan Fantasy Camp in Las Vegas, and assistant director of the LeBron James Kings Academy basketball camp. Wilkes served as an advanced scout for the NBA's Los Angeles Lakers from 1994 to 1998. In addition to camps and scouting, Wilkes has directed the basketball's best basketball coaching clinics held in various cities of the South. He has also spoken at coaching clinics throughout the United States and in many foreign countries, including Taiwan, Portugal, Colombia, Latvia, Venezuela, the Bahamas, Korea, and Hong Kong. Wilkes is an author of five basketball books. Winning Basketball Strategy in 1959, Basketball Coach's Complete Handbook, 1962, Basketball, 1972, Fundamentals of Basketball Coaching, 1982, and Basketball's Three-Point Shot, 1991. I have all of them. I hate to say I collected all of these. Um, great books, great information, um, and uh, it's worth it. I know, I know a lot of people don't go back and get the old basketball books, but uh, they're great, great antiques, great books that you can still apply today. His many basketball accomplishments have earned him the Central Florida Amateur Athletic 2000 Lifetime Achievement Award and selection into the Florida Sports Hall of Fame, the Nike Basketball Coaches Hall of Fame, the Mercer University Sports Hall of Fame, and the Stetson University Sports Hall of Fame. Welks is the site director of the Basketball Best website. Coaches, I think you're absolutely going to love Coach Welks. First of all, how many coaches who have coached from 19 to 1950s and till to, to, to now still involved in basketball at the age of 90 is still quite involved in basketball? This guy is an absolute treasure. I think you're really going to enjoy Coach Welks. So, Coach Welks, welcome to our podcast. Coach Welks. Yes, sir. How are you, Coach? How's it going? It's going very good. Thank you. <laughs> so, I'm so glad everything worked out on your phone. So, we really appreciate you joining us. Uh, I know I'm excited about uh, learning a lot about the game from you. Uh, but thank you so much again, Hey, tell me, let's t- tell our listeners a little bit about who you are. And, and I know I've studied your career, but tell us a little bit about how you became a coach and how this has become almost a labor of love for you over the years, right? Uh, yes. Uh, <clears throat> I played high school basketball in Edenton, Georgia years ago and went to Mercer and played there. And, uh, 
uh, I was given a head junior college job as I graduated at Brutenbalker College in Mount Vernon. So that's where sure. I got into coaching. Yes, and I'm and, very familiar with all that. Yes, because uh, I, I, I live close to Eatonton, and Bruton Parker is such a – I've been to so many camps there. Um, so how did you uh, how did you first kind of get your first coaching job? Tell us a little bit about that. The first at Bruton Parker? Well, actually, well, Bruton Parker, that was your first position. Is that correct? Yes. 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 Tell us a little bit about that, how you kind of got started. Well, I had a good team down there. I, I was able to get some players at the last minute and had a very good team. And we were 14 and two, and I got drafted for the Korean conflict. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I missed right. that, but I was there two years and then came back in 1953 as head coach again at Broome Parker. Back then, when you got drafted, you got your job back. You, you, they couldn't keep you from getting your job back. <laughs> so, um, but being 14 too, I, I wasn't any problem. Though. But at any rate, I coached that four years and then got the job at Stetson and um, never did leave there because we kept growing. When I, uh, when I went there, we were uh, NAI and uh, we played in the NAI division. And I went to Kansas City twice to the national tournament in Kansas City. And then uh, we moved to what they called at the time NCAA College Division, which is kind of like Division Two today. <clears throat> and uh, we stayed in College Division for about seven, eight years. <clears throat> and then we moved to Division One. So we kept growing and it kept my interest. And uh, I just ended up staying at 36 years and enjoyed every minute. Yeah, absolutely. The loyalty. I think we were talking yesterday about how coaches just don't stay around anymore, probably because of the money. Right, coach? So we're I mean, or is it just loyalty? You were just a but um, or you just found a, just, just the right place for you? Well, <clears throat> they were they were it was not as easy to move back then because games were not on television. And now uh, a guy can be a at Florida and do real well. And somebody in California sees him on the tube in the tournament and hires him to come to California <laughs> to go to work at there when probably he is not the in best position because somebody from California would know where all the recruits were out there. But you've seen a lot of cross country hires in recent years since the advent of televised basketball. And uh, I, I, I didn't come along in those times. And, uh, right. So, and, and I guess I guess times are just different now. I'm not sure if they're better or worse, just different. Well, uh, it's not as bad now as some people think it is. I had those little examples with the uh, assistant coaches involved with payment. I don't think that's for a prolific thing that's going on. Right. And, um, I think there's so many good coaches now, very good, that they keep control of the players and uh, don't let them get out of hand and, and do, lead them the right way. Uh, I think that they, they build – what they try to do now is build a family, and they really stress that. Most of them do try to that. Right, for sure. Florida State, for example, Leonard Hamilton has done a great job of 
building a family there. All of them feel like they're in it together. And and North Carolina has been doing that a long time. That was a specialty of Dean Smith. They'd all come back in the summer after they'd graduate, but everybody was in that Tar Heel family. And uh, a lot of coaches are doing that same thing. I have a grandson that plays for Florida State, and uh, he's extremely high on the coaching staff at Florida State. Yeah, and and you mentioned some – in particular, um, you mentioned North Carolina because I have a – I I work at Lake Oconee Academy in Greensboro, Georgia, and one of my – our boys coaches, Michael Brooker, who played at Brentwood uh, here in in Sandersville, and then he also played for uh, Dean Smith at North Carolina, and he he always goes back every year – to North Carolina, which says a lot about the school and what Dean Smith and all that. So that there's no doubt there's a legacy there, right, Coach? You're right. Well, it, I give all that resp- uh, credit to Dean. He was so good, such a great coach, and he really did a job with making his players feel that they were the North Carolina right. family. And hey, when you leave, you come back every summer. Everybody's it's like a reunion every summer. Some schools have a re- reunion every five or ten years of players. He he wanted it every summer. Yeah, they take care. They take care of his players. I know he gets, um, you know, tickets to games and so forth. I mean, they 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 treat their players pretty pretty well. Hey, you're considered the godfather of Florida basketball. Hey, that's a big title right there, Coach. Uh, how did you get that, and why? you just have that reputation of being the godfather of Florida basketball? I don't uh, know. I I don't know who put that title on me, but (laughs) I assumed they were. See, I was lucky enough to be the first uh, coach in the deep South as a, to run a basketball camp. The only one run uh, before we, we did was a couple in North Carolina. Uh, Campbell University that started one about a year before I did, but from the South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee group, I had the first one. And then I started a coaching clinic in the summer uh, that the high school coaches came to primarily. And we'd have 250 or so coaches coming in every summer to the coaching clinic. And I'd bring uh coaches from all over the country and to speak in a small town like the land. But uh, we brought Red Isle back in from the Celtics. We brought uh, Adolph Rupp, John Wooden, and uh, uh, Dean Smith, and people like that all came in to speak at our coaching clinic. So I think the fact that I was running these camps every summer and uh, I did something different. I, uh, I might run a regular basketball camp, but then I started an elite camp. All of them have elite camps now. But I started right, an sure. elite camp with the first one. And uh, then we had uh, um, we'd bring in young players. And then I was the first coach to have in Florida to have a, a girls' basketball camp. So I had that. So I guess that's where the name came from. Yes, and, and it sounded like you're just the originator of coaching clinics. You have run so many camps, and nowadays the camps are, are definitely prevalent all over the place. But I'm not sure. Uh, we run – actually, I, 
I'll, actually, I would love to have you come out. We, I actually run a coaching clinic every year at my school uh, where I get, you know, coaches from all high school coaches from all mm-hmm. over the country to come out because I love clinics. I grew up going to clinics and listening to great coaches. Do you think coaching clinics are are lost and gone, or is that something that coaches, I guess, can get the information online? What's your What's your opinion on coaching clinics now? Well, I think the uh, the <clears throat> what's happened to the coaching clinic that people like Nike took them over, yeah. started running the clinics. So uh, <clears throat> actually, when I had one, I had it nineteen years at Stetson, and they thought I, they, everybody would say it was the best in the South, and it it, it was very good. <clears throat> and uh, it, we done a lot of extra things that they didn't do at a coaching clinic. For example, every night after we get through at nine thirty, we had a room reserved at the hotel where everybody could go out and eat and drink and just have get to know each other and so forth. Mm-hmm. And on Friday night, we'd take them to the Daytona Beach Dog Track or the High Life Frontier. They'd have a, a good time besides learning basketball. They'd have a good time if the weekend. So it, uh, I was able to get just about any coach I wanted to, to come in and speak. And then medalist, uh, company started clinics and they had a lot of money behind them. And so they would, uh, have the coach come in and speak one hour and one hour and a half and that'd be it and leave. Well, when I did the clinics, I had my top speakers like John Wooden and Adolph Rupp and Red Auerbach speak two hours a day for three straight days. That's great. Yeah. And, and <laughs> you look back on it now, that was amazing that those guys would do that. But they did. And uh, so it got to be where I would call and get a coach, and they, and they would tell me, well, medalist says I only have to speak one period. So <laughs> I've got to say, okay, one period. So the, I couldn't hire a lot of people like that. Then I had to hire a lot of the lesser coaches, lesser known coaches. And the, the coaches didn't want to hear them. You know, they wanted their big shots. <laughs> what they wanted to hear. And it finally just kind of, medalist kind of ran me out of business at that combined when Nike started that. And they ran medalist out of business when Nike was, uh, they'd have, uh, uh, you know, eight, uh, maybe 30, 40 coaches under contract with, uh, say, $100,000. And they'd say, plus, you have to speak at two clinics. So they'd be assigning somebody to have a clinic, and uh, they'd have to go. They'd say, well, we've got somebody in Atlanta's having a clinic. We want you to go there for the week or for the weekend. And uh, they didn't have to pay them anymore. And the person running the camp, Nike camps, uh, or clinics, didn't have to pay them either. And uh, so it got away of uh, a camp like mine and a clinic like mine. I uh, couldn't survive. I couldn't get the speakers to let it survive. But another, another thing that um, I think that I probably got a little a good bit of credit for is I was a first coach in the Georgia, Florida, and Alabama area to write, start writing books on basketball. Sure. I uh, 
really uh, Garland Penholster. I don't know if you ever know knew Garland. Actually, I know the name. Yeah, because I, I love the history of the game, and I still have your books, Coach. I show us how much of a basketball junkie I am. Um, so I, I'm very familiar with all your books. Uh, uh, you familiar with Garland Penholster? I am. Yes, and I'm trying to. I'm now. Was he known? I think he was known for the one-two-two zone. No. He was a head coach at Oldthorpe in Atlanta. Okay. Yeah. Yes. They were in AI, and that's where I got to know him. And, uh, okay. And we'd play each other, and I got to know him. And he was very good at an offense they called the wheel offense. And nobody runs yeah. it today, but it was yeah. excellent, hard to guard. And <laughs> uh, so uh, he wrote a book on, on it. And uh, um, then he told me I was in graduate school up at uh, Peabody College of Vanderbilt at, in Nashville and he had written a book and he told me you ought to write one and he put me in touch with Prentice Hall and they invited me to write one and submit an outline and so forth I did and they uh, the Prentice Hall used to have a coaches uh, book club they called it and he'd write it and then he'd sell it for that book club that's who they'd primarily sell it to. And they had a lot of members. And at any rate, I did it. And then once you did one and it was good, they'd let you do another one. Sure. What you, you'd think, all right, uh, you, you write a book and then people buy it. And you'd think, well, now we'll revise it. They don't. They wouldn't let us revise it because they said they already had your book. They're not going to buy it. Many, <laughs> not many people are going to buy it, the revised edition. And that, they, they were right. But they'd say, you can write another one. So I ended up writing a, a couple for them. Uh, and then William C. Brown saw the, the books, and they invited me to write a couple more through them. So uh, that's the way I got into that book business. Yeah, absolutely. And your your last one was the uh, basketball three point shot. Is that correct, Coach? Well, uh, I, yeah, I wrote it, wrote it real quick. I mean, uh, they, they the committee uh, forgotten in the year that they put the three point shot in. When they announced it, I thought, well, other coaches are going to have to. And know how to play it and I got sure. thinking about it and started, read about it and so forth and I did a little self-published book it wasn't put, published by a big company just I self-published it and uh, sold it myself through the contacts uh, and, and at the clinics and different places like that uh, my first book was a winning basketball strategy mm -hmm. which was a popular book and I want to write it today. I've got it in my things to do file <laughs> uh, <laughs> because there's, there's more and more strategy have has come into the game than was in when I wrote the first book. Um, and so I'd like to do another one, but there's a little time element involved. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm doing too many things to, to pick up something else. I have written a couple of ebooks on basketball and I'm going to write some more. Um, the, the, I put it on Amazon and they, they uh, assist you putting up, putting books up there. And 
So I've got one on the flex offense now, the complete book of the flex offense from basketball. And um, it's on that. And uh, I've got a couple of others. I plan to have more because you can take a book, you can take the fast break and write an ebook on fast break, put it on on Amazon, and you don't have to sell it for much. And the first thing you know, you get uh, some change coming in. <laughs> exactly. That always helps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's great. And hey, tell me about, let's, Tell me about because uh, Coach Pete Acock. I think I think you know Coach Pete. Um, uh, he spoke very highly of you. He always talks about the numbered break and all the guys who taught him the numbered break. I want you to talk about your fast break philosophy because um, I know he listens to this podcast all the time. Tell me about you know. Do you believe in the numbered break and and what's what's your philosophy on the fast break? Well, basically the. The numbered break uh, uh, started at Marshall University, as far as I know. I'm sure somebody, a high school coach someplace ran it, and at Marshall University, people saw it and copied it, and they were the one that gave it publicity. Cam Henderson was the coach there. And I first saw him in the NAIA tournament and the national uh, tournament in Kansas City. And uh, then... When I got really familiar with it was when Sonny Allen started using it at Old Dominion University. And we played him in a South Division um, uh, college tournament, national tournament in the South Division, and uh, played him the first game at his place. And they was, he was running a numbered break. And none, none of us really knew it at that time. We, we talked a little bit about it, but not learning the basics and so forth. Well, he ran the basics and they killed us with a numbered break. So I got more interested in it then, but <laughs> it just grew then. Um, after Sonny Allen, I don't know who would be the next one you'd say picked it up, but uh, uh, a number of people use a numbered break. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we use it ourselves. I think there's different forms of it. I think really based on – because we send our, our two wide to the corner. We send our three. Some people send their three to the, to the block. We send ours to the line because we shoot a lot of threes. Uh, our, our post goes opposite alley, weak side, not ball side. Um, then we also have our trailer. But um, we really like to push that ball up hard, one to two, um, hard, really hard. And girls' basketball – I think that's a major weapon because girls don't get back on defense. Um, tell me your belief on what, you know, the lanes and, and just give me a little, little, little uh, tactic stock here a little bit on the number break. Well, the number break, uh, basically, as I knew it, two went down the right corner and three to the left corner. Right. And four, four or five, which one was down first, went to the block. And uh, five would trail or five would go to the block and four would trail. And one would always handle the ball coming down the court. And he could kick it ahead to two or kick it ahead sure. to three. Or he could wait and uh, hit the trailer coming along. And uh, when he hit the trailer, if the trailer could shoot it, he could shoot it. If they couldn't, they initiated the offense from it right there real, real quick. And now it's hard with some of the great point guards you have now to run a numbered break because they don't want to give the ball up. <laughs> exactly. They want to <laughs> they score. Want, 
they were so good they won't go to basket and then go to basket uh, before the defense gets set up. And so I think the numbered break is uh, not as prevalent today. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I tell you what I love about it. It's simple and it gives there's specific roles for, I you know obviously I want my two in the corner, right corner. Cause we, that's my best shooter. Um, but the point guard is huge. And what we do is we rerun kind of a, you know, four out, you know, dribble drive pass cut offense. And I do have a really good point guard that can initiate that action. Um, but um, we don't always want our point guard taking all the shots. So yeah, we believe in distributing the ball. Coach, tell me about, um, tell me about coach Acock. He wanted to ask you a question and, um, but he, and, and he was very complimentary of you. And, he, and I know you – I guess you recruited a lot of his players. Is that correct? How was your connection with Coach Pete? Well, I was seeing him at clinics primarily and, and recruiting players. That would be the fine. Uh, most of the, the coaches that I met were at different coaching clinics around the country because I, I, I really believed in coaching clinics and I went to as many as I could. And I'd always see him because he was – a uh, very good basketball man, <laughs> and he, uh, well, you get good ideas from him, he, and he'd be looking for your ideas. A fun person Absolutely. to be around, very fun person to yeah. be around. I haven't seen him in a long time. Uh, that's the problem with basketball coaching is you become friends with somebody and then you don't see them for twenty years, <laughs> and, uh, right? And then when you retire, like I'm retired from actually coaching uh some of my best friends if i listed the 10 best friends i have probably eight of them live uh two or three thousand miles away <laughs> and uh so you don't get to see them and the same thing with pete and uh, the uh my uh, probably my best friend in coaching is george raveling who yeah absolutely used to coach at uh, Iowa and Washington State and Southern Cal, and George and I are real close. And I've, I've, when I retired from coaching, I uh, was given a job with, uh, with George. Was head of the Nike All America camp at the time, where they brought the top players in the country in, and he hired me to. Since my camp experience was so good, he he hired me to run the technique part of the camp because he was always talking to the press and people like that as director and he hired me to do that and I did that for 11 years and uh, Nike stopped doing it that particular fashion and George uh, uh, he, he got in with Michael Jordan and got Michael to agree to run a camp in Santa Barbara, California and George hired me to run it for him. So at 22 years, I was assistant director of the Michael Jordan camp out there. And Michael, he got Michael to do a, a fantasy camp in Las Vegas where uh, the fellows with a little cash would come and pay $15,000 to go for the weekend to basketball <laughs> camps. Yeah, and I'm sure get, that was fun. <laughs> they'd get pictures with Michael and and uh, equipment and signatures and things like that. And the signatures would go for pretty good. And, uh, they'd get two signatures. They got two uh, autographs, as we say. 
they might sell five thousand dollars for the two, and so sure. part of them, uh, that um, that tenant's fee was um, taken, you know, was replaced with that. And Michael would come every year. We did that eleven years of fantasy camp before he stopped, and uh, he'd give all the profit. Everybody'd say, "Well, he's making all his money." He didn't make anything. He gave all it to Make-A-Wish Foundation. That's his uh, pet uh, charity. And his camp profits, which, listen, I, I'll tell you, we in his camp for kids, he'd have 800 a week for two weeks. Wow. And um, so he had to be making $500,000, $600,000, and he gave it all to charity. Same thing at that camp at in Las Vegas, uh, no telling what he made, but five or six hundred thousand, and he gave it to charity. So Mike didn't—he doesn't tell everybody that. He doesn't brag on it. You don't know anything about the things he does, but he's certainly a, a quality individual, and been one of the my joys of life is getting to know him. Yeah, and you've met a lot of great people. I, I've, I've really researched and studied your career. You've met a lot of great, I, I would have to say, really, I know the game of basketball started, started fairly early in the 1900s, but starting in the 1950s, how many great people and great coaches, icons that you have met? Can you give us a little story on, you know, maybe even a John Wooden story or a Dean Smith? or even a Michael Jordan story on things you learned from them, what the impact they had on you. Cause I know you met a lot of great people. Yeah. Well, John Wooden uh, was a guy that I got to know real well. And uh, in fact, he'd call and recommend me a, for a job someplace. And uh, I, I'd always appreciated him doing that, but he's I just to tell you about him. He came into my coaching clinic. And he spoke Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, two hours a day. <laughs> and Sunday, I, I had my camp starting. I had 150. So I split them in 75 into the classroom and 75 on the floor. And he spoke to the 75. And then at the end of the hour, they flipped them, and the new 75 came in, and he spoke to them. Now... That's work. All the stuff he was doing was work. Yeah, sure. Monday morning, that started on Sunday. Monday morning, we were having to use two gyms, gym one and two. And we gave him a station, a shooting station. We wanted every kid in camp to come by and hear words from John Wooden. So he had a shooting station, and we would split it with 80 in each gym. And 40 would, would go uh, for an hour, uh, 45 minutes, say, with him. And then we'd blow a whistle, and we'd rotate and take the ones that had uh, been with him over to the other gym. And he'd always take him to the other gym, and then he'd take 40. <laughs> and sure. he'd come back to this gym, take the next 40. Then we'd go back over there. He'd have four rotations at 40 minutes each place and this was in the summer in non-air-conditioned gyms and uh, 
He never complained about the heat. He never complained. He was glad to do it. Now, he did all of that. And we gave him $1,000 total. <laughs> right. And uh, that's just so. Well, coaches back then, the, the clinics didn't pay very much anyway because sure. I had Red Isle back and uh, Adolph Rupp in the land for a clinic. They spoke three days, two hours a day. And I paid them $300 a piece. <laughs> right. That, that's an awesome story. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, that was a long time ago. And uh, it's not like today where the money's just popping out of anywhere for those coaches now. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a great story, coach, because I don't, I would not, I, I go to a lot of clinics or a lot of camps. I don't see the head coach, you know, maybe at Georgia or Georgia Tech or anybody running a station for kids. I see their assistants doing it. And I yes. think that's so impressive. Don't you think? I mean, we got to go. I hate to say it. We got to go back to the old school. I love to see these head coaches actually getting out there and teaching and sweating. I know that sounds crazy, but I would be so impressed with that. But they're not going to do it right. But at the same time, I, I did not do stations myself and run any camps. I had to say if we had six stations and 10 guys at a station, I'd have six capable coaches run it. And I'd go from station to station and make corrections and make sure they were doing their job. And I don't think I could have supervised well if I'd have just had one station. Sure. And, uh, but I was on the floor all the time with them. And I believe that's head coach ought to be. But um, some of the coaches will go 10 minutes and say, welcome the kids and leave. And you don't say leave. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pet peeve of mine, coach. Um, so I, I just think, yeah, I mean, I, I know you would like to see that and so forth, uh, but it's not going to happen. I, it's almost like the head college coach now is almost separated from not only from his staff, but from the public almost where back in your time, these guys were, I mean, John Wooden sounded from the people that I have spoken with on this podcast. They said he had an open door policy. He would invite him to that, their, his house. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think so. I never did go. And that's one of my regrets. I could have gone anytime I wanted to, to his house, but I never did get to go uh, and spend the time with him in his home. Uh, when he spoke for me, uh, we, got, we got a ring, but I, I'm not. That's okay. <laughs> All right, I got it off. <laughs> All right, no problem. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, he was, he came here to speak, and I had to drive him. My wife and I had to drive him to Orlando to the airport. And it was raining, and he was in the back seat. And all the, all the way, he quoted poetry to us. That's awesome. I don't know <laughs> if you knew, but he was a, a big hobby of his was poetry. Absolutely, so, yes. So he would quote, and he was just enthralled with him talking in the back seat of my little car. <laughs> Boy, that was something else. And another one I was so tickled to get to know was Adolph Rupp and uh, he was he was such a good coach way ahead of his time and the funny thing 
with Adolf, I I wrote him a letter when I was a 16-year-old at Edenton High School. And I'd average 16 points a game. And I thought that was a big deal. <laughs> and I wrote him a letter and told him I'd like to come to the University of Kentucky. And he sent me a train ticket. So I went to Atlanta and got on the train and went up there. And uh, he went to his office and we talked. He took me out on the floor and he got him a chair and he sat down. And he turned to me and said, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> so I started shooting and I shot about 20 minutes and he says, okay, I want you to come back tomorrow at the same time. I want to watch you some more. So he left and I left and went down to the hotel where they had it for me. Came back the next morning he got his chair and he went out and he said, shoot. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I shot the ball for another 20 minutes and I was a shooter, though, no doubt about that, but we went back in his office and he said, Glenn, you are not quite what I'm looking for. And what it was was size. I, I wasn't yes. a real guard and I was just 6'3". And uh, so I left and um, he signed a guy called Wawa Jones, who is considered the best they ever had at Kentucky, best athlete I've ever had, even to this day. And uh, later on in my coaching career, when I started to ask him to come down to speak at well, first I had a player he recruited. I recommended to him, and he recruited the player. And then he, I got him down to the coaching clinic, and I got to know him real well. And he, I never mentioned the fact that I'd visited his campus. He, he didn't remember it, I'm sure. But I never did uh, mention it. And uh, he, I got so well, such a good friend of his, that we uh, had not had a gym at Stetson first 15, 18 years I was here and we finally built a nice gym. And uh, on dedication night, he had just retired from coaching. I had him come down and be my honorary coach for our Oldman game, which was against Marshall. And he sat on the bench with me. And I, I had him early. I had the uh, Marshall team not come on the floor early you know, the game was ready to go, and I had him hold back and let Adolph walk out on the floor. Now, our building did a seat of about 5,000, and it was jam-packed. And Adolph walked out by himself. I asked him, would he walk out and wave to the crowd? He said, I've done it many times, he told me. <laughs> <laughs> so we walked. Uh, he walked out there. I never will forget it. Mid-court, waving at the crowd, and the crowd went wild. Uh, with Adolf there, and then he came back and sat on the bench with me. And uh, uh, that's just, I was so lucky to get, call him a good friend. And uh, was the main thing is I mentioned George Raveling. Now, he had been the most influenced coach I've ever had because I learned so much from him. I had the opportunity to learn from George. I, I didn't learn as much from Adolf because I wasn't with him long. Sure. I'd be with him a day and then maybe at a clinic two days and he's talking to a lot of other people. And uh, But with George, I, I wish, I've always said that I would, I wish that I had met George before I started coaching and had him teach me how to coach <laughs> because he was so good at 
teaching certain things that you don't stop and think of. You got to have his coaching. First of all, he taught me to, to preparation. He was fanatic on being prepared. And uh, I thought I always had good preparation for game and so forth. But I didn't have the preparation this, that George has. I mean, when I went to work for him at the All-America camp, uh, we were so prepared when the camp started. It was unbelievable. He'd flown the entire staff and uh, administrators into where they, in the Indianapolis is where the site was of the All-America camp. He'd flown us in there twice, first time to look over facilities, and uh, then the second time go back, and and we've already got the drills lined up and see where they were going to go and so forth, and uh, that was unbelievable. And in everything we did, he put time in preparing, and um, that was a number one thing I I learned from him. Another thing I learned from him was the power of relationships. I thought I always uh, had good relationships with the coaches and friends and so forth. But he had a plan for his relationships. He had a plan. If he met you, he, he was going to call you the two weeks from now and tell you how glad he was to meet you. And he was going to have you on a list to call about once every month or two months. And uh, first thing you know, he, he's in um, uh, positions of power like with Nike, like he went to director of global basketball for Nike. He's still calling those same people he made relationships with. And I've never seen anybody make them as good as he can make them. And uh, so that was something I wish I'd learned a little earlier in life. <laughs> it, right. <clears throat> Preparation and, and relationships. Relationships, yeah. Really important things yeah. in coaching. And that in coaching, that's, uh, I mean, particularly the relationships. What advice can you give to young coaches these days? Because I think young coaches in particular are in the profession. Hey, they got to win, win, win. And I know high schools put a lot of pressure on coaches. But it's also about meeting other coaches, learning and building those relationships maybe by going to a clinic, right, Glenn? Yeah, I think that coaches ought to really be receptive to clinics and go and learn as much as they can. Um, but I tell the high school coaches, <clears throat> the ones that I see now, and uh, they, if they, I find out they want to get ahead, they want to go grow as a coach, uh, get to a top high school and then get into college or some, in some form. I've always told them all that they got to build a relationship with the top college coaches if they can, that can help them. And uh, it's not as much in, in the coaching growth profession, growing and, and becoming an, a college coach and so forth. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And, uh, so I would say, to, I'd say to a coach now, if uh, you want to be a college coach, 
make sure you call up or you write a letter to Billy Donovan at Florida. He's no longer at Florida, but just using an example, write a letter and ask him to let you work his camp. And you get a camp, you get, he gives you a job. You make sure you go in and you do the best job of anybody in the camp within I'm talking about enthusiasm and things like that, not knowledge, because a young coach is not going to know as much as an older coach. But uh, they, and that coach sees you work, and then you, you go home and you write him a note, and you say, "Thanks for letting me work your camp. I learned a great deal, and look forward to doing it again." And I said, "He knows, and you've written him in." You're Joe Doe, and all of a sudden you become Bill Smith, your real <laughs> name. And then exactly go back, and he his team beats Kentucky. So you write him a letter, a little note, and say, Coach Donovan, I was excited last night to watch your game with Kentucky, and you did a great job coaching it, and I'm happy for you. Now he know, really knows who you are. <laughs> It's getting that way, and you go back. And the first thing you know, when they develop, and they're not doing this with just one coach. They're working a camp at, at Florida, and they're working a camp at Florida State, and they're working a camp at University of South Florida. I'm I'm speaking geographically now. Sure. Schools right around them. And the first thing you know, you've de- developed a friendship with Billy Donovan, and as a junior college opens in your area, and you – uh, called Billy Donovan and they, they saw Bill Smith that's on the phone and he, tell, he knows who you are. So he answers your phone and you say, Coach, would you mind recommending me for the junior college job in such and such? And they'll all inevitably say, yes, I'll be glad to. And he picks up the phone and calls you and the first thing you know, you get the job at, at the junior college that you would not have got had you not got where people knew you and it's it's hard to get jobs unless you get somebody that can help you right and and, and resumes don't get you job it's connections right coach right going out to meet people. <laughs> um but that's great advice i'm telling you that is as, as super advice um because you can't sit back you got to grind it out you got to get out you got to work you got to show people what you, what you know, but you also got to connect with the right people. That's great advice. Hey, tell me about your days at Mercer. I was very fortunate to coach with a guy named Richard Reed from Mercer. Do you know Richard? Oh, I know Richard well. He was a, <laughs> he was a, tell me some stories about your days at Mercer and, and Coach Reed. <laughs> well, I wasn't there with him. He was there 10 years after I was. Okay. Uh, I just would go see him play, and I knew he was a good player. But I didn't have any any stories I could tell you about that. But my days at Mercer were, were very enjoyable to me. I First of all, my first coaching job was at Mercer. I went there as a 16-year-old freshman. When I went to college, I went to high school in Georgia, they did not have 12 grades. We had 11 grades in okay. the 1940s. And so I, I graduated at 16. 
and I went to Mercer, and they had dropped basketball because of World War II. And the year I went there was 1945 and 46, and they had no basketball team. So I, I loved basketball. I'd been uh, just enjoying playing at Edenton. So I organized a Mercer freshman. I called it some Mercer freshman. And I got six, seven, eight guys that liked to play in the gym. And we'd go to, and uh, I was kind of the coach. <laughs> and I end up scheduling games. I got a couple of junior college games. And they had a city league in, in Macon that we would play the men's team. And um, the high school was big and making at a time and uh, the men's league would play the prelim to the high school game so we'd go down and play those preliminary games uh, against the older guys in his in the city and um, it was a quite an experience now the next year they put basketball back in and i was a lot better ready to play by going against those adult men that year I was then a 17-year-old, and I, I went out for the team, and I made it. I was only a freshman on the starting lineup my freshman year. So I ended up playing four years in of varsity basketball, where I'd already played one with that supposedly Mercer freshman team. But it wasn't an official team, so it didn't count a year as ability. Okay. So I, I played four more. more. That's one of the things that. <laughs> I did, and I had it, it came along um, my senior year. I, I del deliberately, uh, as a junior, I could have graduated, but I had another eligibility. So I didn't take the courses to let me graduate. And I wait, went back the next year, which was my fifth year. I went back, and I didn't have to go to the fall quarter. We were on a quarter system. I didn't have to go because I didn't have to take any classes, but I went and stayed in the dorm and practiced every day. And the, the uh, basketball schedule started before I enrolled for the one a quarter. And uh, my coach uh, called a coach we were opening with, Florida Southern, I remember it was, and he, he said, uh, I got a player that, that uh, he's, he's been sitting out, but he's going to be fully eligible for the fall, for the one a quarter. And I'd like to play him the first night. And the coach uh, okayed it. <laughs> so I played one or uh, two games for Marshall, not being in school. <laughs> that was, uh, and I said, well, as I remember, I had about 25 that night. I guess that coach agreed to <laughs> let me play, you know. And uh, uh, <clears throat> things like that I remember from Mercer, but plus some of the people I got to know. And my coach, I, I, I adored my coach. He, uh, I really looked up to him, and uh, yeah, I learned a lot from him. And he and I used to talk strategy. I was because I knew I wanted to go into coaching. It had never been a question. And I had already started reading coaching journals when I was 16 and 17 years old. And uh, I, I really was fortunate to build a relationship with my college coach that was really meaningful to me. 
but I'm sure if I sat down and started talking more and met a couple of my friends, there'd be some <laughs> other stories. About, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, that's what we want. Yeah, absolutely. We, I love the stories. I mean, that's what it's all about, those great memories. Um, so you knew that coaching was going to be in your plans. Um, I, I, when I talk to coaches that have coached a long time, they kind of knew it, you know, it's, it's funny how they just, they just have that mindset that one day they're going to be a coach. Tell, tell us a little bit about that, how you kind of knew that you were going to be a coach. Well, I, as soon as I graduated from high school, that's what I wanted to be. Okay. I didn't, there wasn't a doubt what I wanted to be. And uh, like when I went as a coach, the most freshman, I was just, it was in my blood and that was what I had. And, and uh, all through my playing days, uh, I I was hopeful I'd make, make the NBA, but uh, it didn't work out. I, I, I played real well, and I got drafted uh, by the NBA, but um, they, I didn't get a no-cut contract. And I was at the same time I was I could sign the contract with them. The junior college offered me the head job, and I was 21. So um, that just kept me right there in coaching by taking a junior college job. It would have done me a good if I got drafted. I had to go with the team. I was drafted by Syracuse. Okay. Which I believe now it's Philadelphia. They moved from Syracuse, I believe it was to Philadelphia. But I was drafted by Syracuse, and I was drafted by the Army um, in, in uh, January. Now, I had a three-month deferment because I was teaching, coaching in a school, but I wouldn't have gotten that deferment if I'd have gone straight to Syracuse. So if I'd have gone to Syracuse about the 1st October, I'd have gotten drafted into the Army anyway, so it would have been difficult. And then I'd arranged for two years after I was in Korea, two years and I was in Korea, I'd arranged, they gave me a a, a tryout scheduled for like February the 1st when I got out of the Army. I could come to Syracuse for a tryout. And in the Army, they have a, what they uh, call PMOS numbers, and that's um, Primary Military Occupation Specialist. So I had a, a particular M, uh, MOS that I worked in the G1 division and intelligence division. And so the time I was getting out of February 1st and uh, they couldn't find that they hadn't drafted a replacement in my PMOS and they said I couldn't go. So I had to stay in Korea another month <laughs> before they let me come back. So I, I, it wasn't meant for me to be a pro basketball sure. player. It was meant for me to be a coach. As soon as I as soon as I got back into Macon, the state tournament was on, and I went to state tournament, and I met a principal from South Georgia that wanted me to come help him coach, and I went down there and I coached all spring with him, and at the time, that we had a good, really good player that no no one knew about him. I was going back to the junior college in September, August September. 
and I got this guy to go with me of my first recruit. That's great right there, Coach. That, that was the first step, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. That was, yeah. Uh, I knew all along I was going to go into coaching. Yeah, that's great. I haven't been able to give it up, basketball up. <laughs> Exactly. You're still coaching, Glenn, so there's no doubt. Let's talk about your longevity, though. I mean, it's unbelievable. I I envy you because um, I would love to have your longevity and your ability to be around and impact the game for as long as you have. You always – I read an article about you always have to look forward to something, right? And every right. year you go on – the summer trip with Coach Huggins at West Virginia. Tell us a little bit about that and how. What's that? Give us some. Give us your kind of your steps on on the secret to longevity. Well, I'm just uh, the secret to longevity was my mother's family. They all <laughs> lived about ninety, and I had that in my blood. So, but I, from a mental aspect, as I as you said earlier. Um, you always have to have something to look forward to. And if you don't, you get bored. Now, I don't, don't like getting bored. And I always got something to look forward to. So uh, I uh, now I, I, I take teams overseas. NCAA allows a team to go over once every four years. And so I have a company now that I market uh, to the other companies that I compete with. I was a market to take them overseas. And uh, I have West Virginia going to Spain. And uh, I might be a little old to go to Spain, <laughs> but I would, wouldn't miss it of being with Bob Huggins for Absolutely. 10 days. Yes. Because he's, a, he's a, quite a character in coaching. He's an excellent coach. And uh, – all the teams go and they go to the Prado and all these historical sites. And he told me, I don't want to go to Prado. I want to practice. That's all I want to do. <laughs> so we have him going into Spain, three cities. He's playing a game in each city. He's uh, practicing four times. So of the nine days, they'll be there. And uh, so I'll be able to go to every practice, watch him practice and learn some more for my next coaching career. <laughs> that's right. And that that's what I tell you it, what I get out of out of your career and, and, and your personality is you're still learning. And I, I don't think enough coaches are doing that. Um, and that just says a lot that all of you have, have taught us and and the, all the books you have written, you're still learning the game. And I think all the great coaches have that, right? I think so. I, I just, uh, I, I really, uh, I'll see a play on on uh, play on on the tube, and I'll write it down and put it in a folder. <laughs> I'll, I'll give it to my son, who's a women's basketball coach at Rollins, uh, and uh, I'll give it to him, and he'll he'll maybe put it into his offense or something like that. But I'm always trying to find new ones. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to get I want to get your son on the podcast. So I, I got to make sure I get the contact information to have you guys back to back. I think that would be uh, really a treat for all the listeners out there. Uh, the, my last question is, you are trying to write your next book. I think it's the one three one zone. You're, 
you're trying to do um, what's what's your next? I probably will do the one three one uh because I wrote one myself and and, and self published one and um it was like twelve, fourteen pages long and diagrams all it was and I'd give it out at clinics and so forth. And it's already done and I'd just doctor it up some and make about a thirty page booklet out it. I'm probably gonna do that one first, but I got a little list of uh, ebooks I want to do. And, uh, one of them is my, uh, redo the strategy book, but that's, that takes a lot uh, to do that. Cause there's a lot of strategy now that wasn't in the game in 1950. Right. And give me, g- give me one thing that you see strategically. Um, for example, I use the three point shot with my girls program a lot. Um, I think that's a valuable weapon for us. I got all small players. Uh, we're quick, and I, I love the three-point shot. Tell me one key strategical thing that you would add to your book. Well, uh, right offhand, it's, it's changed a little bit. I, I can tell you what I would do as a coach, not necessarily strategy. Okay. If I was going back into coaching, I would spend more time than I, on footwork than I ever did before because I think footwork is the number one key to becoming a basketball player. Sure. And, uh, so many coaches don't don't work on, um, on various footwork. They'll do a drill maybe, uh, but they don't make the correction. I, I learned uh, – um, uh, later in my coaching career, I had a guard walk 11 times one night. That's called walking on him early in the season. And I went back and analyzed it. And he, he walked 11 times because I had let him get away with walking in practice. And so we started working with him. And, and when he'd walk in practice, we'd make sure we call walking. And I go to a good many practices now. And rarely do I see a coach call walking on that players. That's a great point. And uh, I think it's important. I saw a college practice uh, a few days ago, and I saw the guys out there working and shooting and driving and so forth. And I couldn't believe how many of them were ending up walking, and they didn't call it. And if if that doesn't if you don't call a walking in practice and they walk in a game you can't holler at the player for walking it's your fault. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's the coach's fault. Yeah, you're right. Coach's um, fault. Coach's fault. Yes, and that's funny because even I run all my little kids camps and we always have a footwork station and I, and the one footwork I, I I teach the reverse pivot a lot. Glenn, mm-hmm. and, uh, because I think it's the best way to square up. It's quicker, mm-hmm. uh, but man, kids, it, that's, that's hard to teach because kids don't go home and practice that. So tell mm-hmm. me about your philosophy on pi- uh, pivoting before we go here. I believe in the reverse pivot square up. What's your philosophy? Well, I've never done a lot. I've done reverse pivot a lot, but I haven't never taught it to get it ready to shoot. And I don't know, I see a lot of teams doing it now, and I'm kind of leaning toward that being the best thing. I always t- stepped into it, pivot into the to uh, the defender 
sure. back, back up, you know, I try to do that. But the reverse is real quick. There's no question about it. But it has to be worked on. I love that what you said, coaches have to either either punish or penalize, right, very quickly that mistake and teach. Well, I don't think it's one that you have to penalize necessarily. I just think it when he walks, you got to tell him he walks and show him why he walked. He won't understand. Right. But the players, you watch them in the games, and they get walking called on them, and they look at the coach and the, the, the referee. So they can tell by the expression on the face they didn't <laughs> think they walked. Sure. And, and most of the time I said they did walk, and they don't know it. So – you got to make sure you communicate to the player why they called walking on him. What was he doing with his feet that he shouldn't have been doing with his feet? Yeah, and that's just that's just teaching the details, right, Coach? Right. And John Chaney, you remember John Chaney, his coach at Temple? He, he was one of the excellent coaches in the country. When he'd go on a coaching clinic, he came to me and did my clinic. He wanted to talk. The first thing he wanted to talk on was reducing turnovers. Turnovers, yeah, sure. And he would stress for about 30 minutes the different ways kids walk and how you reduce your turnovers when you eliminate walking in your offense. Yeah, that's so true. Yes. <coughs> um, and, yeah, he was one of the best at limiting turnovers. I have so much material on – what he did and that he, he didn't focus on a lot. Did he coach? He focused on some basic stuff, but they executed well at Temple, didn't they? Yeah, they were very basic. He, he had, what he did was a very good matchup zone and yes. nobody could solve his matchup zone. <laughs> Absolutely. Really good. Coach a, I, I sure appreciate you coming on. I'm sure the listeners are going to definitely try to contact you. Um, I just think you're a true visionary of the game on that. And I really appreciate you taking the time out. Um, I'm actually, I run a clinic every year out here in um, Greensboro, Georgia. And I would love to have you come out. Uh, matter of fact, I'll send you some information. Uh, I would love to have you come out and visit. As a matter of fact, I, we can get a place out here on the lake for you to stay. Because um, I just think you're just a, a true treasure of the game. And I love to have you come out and just, uh, I appreciate you connecting with us. Well, I enjoyed it. I appreciate you inviting me to uh, talk on this uh, podcast. It's very, uh, I commend you for doing it because it's uh, certainly will be helpful to a lot of coaches. It sure will. Yeah. Thank you for sharing with us coach. And I appreciate it hey, and continue to look forward to things. Right, coach. I'll try to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye now. Coaches, I got an exciting announcement. On September 14, 2019, the Legends on the Lake Basketball Coaching Clinic will be back. Um, we're really excited to host a great clinic this year. Uh, we will have the top coaches in the state of Georgia and around the country. Uh, attend our 2019 clinic here at Lake Oconee Academy in Greensboro, Georgia. 
The clinic will go from 8 a.m. until 6 p.m. We, we feel like we are the most unique coaches clinic in the country and that we will have a live demonstration team from Middle Georgia Prep School demonstrating all the on-court activities for the speakers. In addition, we'll have the best high school coaches from states like Georgia, Wisconsin, Alabama, Tennessee, Missouri, and New Jersey. We have speakers starting at 8 a.m., and we will have our last speaker at 3.45 p.m. We provide the coaches with a meal, snacks, shirt, everything they need in our beautiful new facility here at Lake Oconee Academy. You cannot go wrong. If you're interested in signing up for this clinic, I will give you a special deal. Please put <clears throat> a special code <clears throat> of LEGENDS. And you email me at furtadok57 at gmail.com. I will give you a special discount if you come to our clinic. And also, I'll provide you any hotels that are close by the school. We're right off of I-20 here in Greensboro, Georgia. Looking forward to seeing all you coaches. Take care. Hey coaches, this is Matt Smith, the president and founder of United Basketball Clinics. I want to let you know about two great clinics we have going on later this year. The Hoosier Gym Coaches Clinic, August 23rd and 24th at the legendary Hoosier Gym in Knightstown, Indiana. Vance Wahlberg, Dave Love, Doug Porter, Mike Neighbors, John Kaufman, and more will be speaking that weekend. All sessions are on the floor with live demonstration. Also, we have the Peach State Coaches Clinic in Atlanta, Alpharetta, Georgia, September 28th. Hernando Planell, Charmin White, Gene Durden, Alan Whitehart, the staff from Georgia State University, and more. Please visit unitedbasketballclinics.com to register. Early bird pricing ends August 1st. That's unitedbasketballclinics.com. Same staff discount supply. I look forward to seeing you there. Hey coaches, this is Nick Bartlett with Dr. Dish Basketball and you're listening to the Championship Vision Podcast with Coach Kevin Furtado. Make sure to check us out at drdishbasketball.com and on Twitter and Instagram at at drdishbball for daily basketball drills, tips, inspiration, and how we've revolutionized the basketball shooting machine over here at Dr. Dish. Also mention this podcast and you will receive an exclusive discount on your next Dr. Dish purchase. Thanks for tuning in.